Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Harley Schlanger of the Schiller Institute and LaRouche Organization. He is a prolific and extremely well-informed analyst, speaker, and blogger. I've been listening to him and reading his work and that of LaRouche and the Schiller Institute for many years. Uh, in fact, I, I, I found this uh, used book that I have from 1999, <laughs> 1999 uh, The Road to Recovery by LaRouche that I had picked up in a used bookstore. And uh, as well, uh, a number of my previous podcast guests, such as Daniel Estulin and Alex Craner, have been speakers at the Schiller Institute uh, events. And so, you know, good afternoon, Harley. Thank you for being here. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, and it's good to meet you. Yes, uh, same here. And, you know, since today is the 58th anniversary of the Deep State assassination of JFK, and you recently published an update on this. I thought we could start here. Uh, I recently had Edward Curtin on the podcast, and we discussed how there seems to be a line that runs through JFK to 9-11, to COVID-9-11, that the same forces are behind what is happening today, the military, pharmaceutical, technological, industrial, academic, con congressional media complex. Uh, I was reading some articles from Jefferson Morley, an expert on the JFK assassination, who I've interviewed multiple times, discussing how the Biden administration and CIA will, of course, delay release of JFK files, and that obviously concealment of information means complicity. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recently stated that the CIA is a driving force behind this pandemic and Great Reset. For us Americans and also the people of the world, what is the importance of remembering what happened uh, on this day with JFK? And do you agree that this same deep state has grown, grown monstrously in power and is behind or involved in the current pandemic and Great Reset? What I pointed out in my daily update today is that this was the beginning of an escalation of what we call today the deep state or the shadow government. But it was there in principle going back to the Dulles brothers and the end of World War II. But the importance of this date is that it was a personal tragedy in, in that John Kennedy was young. He was just coming into a sense of his own power. And most importantly, the, the story that few people realize is he was moving against this whole empire policy, which is what the deep state represents. Uh, Kennedy came out of the World War II with a, a certain closeness to the Roosevelt faction in the Democratic Party, which was anti-British, anti-colonial. FDR had big debates with Churchill that at the end of the war, there'll be no, never again will Americans die to defend the British empire. Kennedy in the Senate, in the late 50s gave numerous speeches attacking the colonial policy towards Africa, the underdevelopment, the commitment to keeping these nations poor. And when it came to the United States, he was completely set up with the Bay of Pigs. Again, the Cuban Missile Crisis was something that uh, he wasn't quite prepared for, but we're lucky he was the president because he immediately saw this as an opportunity to open a back-channel discussion with the Soviet Union. And that was one of the things I think that got him killed. His unwillingness to expand the Vietnam War, which is now decisively proven by new documents that have been released, is another reason. And the third reason was his June 1963 order to release treasury notes as opposed to Federal Reserve, because the Fed was doing what they usually do, which is a high interest rate policy. Kennedy had exactly the right approach on, approach on economics, which was low interest rates provided the interest goes into something that produces wealth. His investment tax credit should be compared 
to what Donald Trump did, whereas Trump was trying to do some of these same things to build up industry and manufacturing. But he let them have a tax cut without any mandate that they move the money into physical economy. What Kennedy's investment tax credit was going to do would be give a tax cut to corporations that hire new people, create new plant and equipment, invest in research and development, in other words, build the physical economy. And after his death, besides the personal tragedy for the Kennedy family and for the nation, the big tragedy is no one stood up and cried foul when the Warren Commission came out with its fraudulent report blaming a lone assassin for the, the killing. So I think we can reflect today on how far downhill we've gone economically, psychologically, morally, uh, to the point that the United States, as we've just seen with these last 40 years of war, and to me, the Afghan war is a 40-year war, not just a 20-year war, the endless wars in the Middle East, these go completely against the tradition that Kennedy represented in American foreign policy, as well as his moves, you know, he was moving against the CIA. He fired Alan Dulles. How did Alan Dulles get appointed to oversee the work of the Warren Commission? So we should look at this and then realize, that, as you pointed out, if you look at the Vietnam War, you look at the, the invasion of Panama, Grenada, uh, you look at things that many people have forgotten that, that occurred, the, the Balkans, and then the most recent cases, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, Yemen, uh, Libya, Ukraine, the U.S. is committed to what Blinken calls a rules-based order. Who makes the rules? The global bankers who run what you described earlier in its biggest term of the, what for shorthand we'll call the military-industrial complex. It's not just defense, it's finance, it's cartels. And what we've been trying to do with, with our work is point out that the cartels making policy today were the same cartels that put Hitler in power in the 30s, the same trusts, the same networks of big oil, big pharma, steel, the rubber cartels. These are the same ones, same families in many cases that are making the policies today, that are policies that destroy countries if a country gets out of line, in other words, if they don't accept the rules-based order, which means surrender their sovereignty to the bankers, then they're targeted for regime change. So this is a broad arc of history, this 58 years, but you can actually find in the reason for Kennedy's death, the cause for all the crises we face today, the fraudulent crises, the false flags, and so on. So I think that's why people in reflecting on this should not just reflect on the personal tragedy of losing a young president who is coming into his own, but of the tragedy of what happened to the promise of America that was implicit and even explicit in the Kennedy foreign policy, economic policy, and social and cultural policy. And um, kind of to bring us forward to today, what would be your view or, or breakdown of you know the, this great reset that, that we're hearing about and uh, a lot of these government re restrictive government uh 
you know, pandemic health measures that we're seeing that are linked with these financial uh, measures. You know, we're hearing all this talk about the digitalization of, of everything. And I think that's linked to the same people that you just mentioned, these these cartels that go that put Hitler into power are the same, you know, and the bankers that are behind a lot of this stuff today. What would be your your thought on the Great Reset? Well, don't forget, one of the new cartels is Silicon Valley and their relationship with DARPA. They, they were created by the Defense Department and a bunch of hippies who had this idea that, oh, we're going to give everyone freedom and independence. Freedom and independence to do what? To get brainwashed. And that's what we see with the social media. Look, in terms of the present situation, the Great Reset actually was something that's been underway for quite a while. What the bankers realize is that their idea of a world order, which is a unilateral order where everyone has to give up sovereignty and accept the power of the international banks, the international cartels. And if you get out of line, the U.S. military with NATO as a sidekick, uh, a small amigo, you might say, will go in and destroy you. And who's directing the attack? What actually comes from MI6, Chatham House, the, the Henry Jackson Society in London, and Wall Street is a big part of it. Silicon Valley is a big part of it. And if you dissect what happened with the regime change operation against Donald Trump with Christopher Steele and so on, you see that. But when you talk about the Great Reset, we're very explicit as to what we see as the Great Reset. This goes back to a, um, an August 2019 meeting at Jackson Hole, Wyoming the annual Federal Reserve retreat, where Larry Fink of BlackRock brought in four former central bankers to work with uh, Carney, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, to talk about what Carney called a financial regime change. What Carney and others, including Sir Michael Bloomberg uh, of the former mayor of New York and the Bloomberg Financial, have this idea that if sovereign nations make determinations, they're not going to go along with policies that are needed by the banks. What do the banks and financial institutions need? They need cheap labor, cheap raw materials, cheap government, and constant flow of new money. And that new money is not going into anything productive. It's going into ever new kinds of bubbles, going back to the mortgage-backed securities, derivatives, and so on. Now, the Great Reset is actually was kicked into gear in August 2019. But in September 2019, we had what most people don't know about or don't understand, which was called the repo crisis, the repurchasing agreement crisis, where many banks were being besieged by their corporate customers for money. They needed money. Why did they need money? Because they were holding unsustainable levels of debt. And there were zombie corporations, meaning they didn't make enough income to pay the interest on that debt. So they would line up at night at the banks and get an overnight loan, which is called a repurchase agreement, where they give some kind of financial instrument, usually something that's worthless. And in return, they get fresh cash. They pay down the debt. And the next day, they buy back the instruments they gave them. Now, this is a classic Ponzi scheme, but it was run by the Federal Reserve. And when there was trouble, and this is where I fault Donald Trump with not being farsighted enough to see who was stabbing him in the back. He gave Larry Fink 
the responsibility to run later on what became the COVID Relief Act. What Fink and Carney and others were doing was saying, we have to give all the power to the central banks. And the great reset is you don't just give them the power to determine credit and, and currency policy, which they already have. No, you give them the power to determine spending. Take it away from governments. Don't allow governments to respond to their constituency needs because at some point, governments get pounded into doing what's necessary for the population. We're seeing some of that with the shockwave of elections for the last four years, including in the United States. I think in, in Mexico with uh, Lopez Obrador, in, uh, certainly in Europe, the reaction against the European Union. But all of this started before the corona crisis. And this is something that people don't realize. This, this was on the books. You know, people who think everything with corona was orchestrated. Well, look, the people who plan these things have all kinds of contingencies in mind. Whether Bill Gates and Fauci got together and cooked up a bacteriological warfare strategy at Fort Detrick, I'll leave that to some of the more deep down conspiracy theorists. But what they definitely did is they used that as an excuse to push ahead with the Green New Deal and the Great Reset. The Green New Deal is connected to the Great Reset because they don't want to invest new credit into new physical economy. And so what they're saying is, in order to keep the money flowing into the banks and the hedge funds and so on, we have to shut down physical production. What's the best way to do it? Concoct something that's been in the works since the 1960s, an environmental crisis, whether it's global cooling in an ice age, global warming, it all is based on this idea that human activity is destroying the planet, that human beings are the predators against the planet, when the real predators are the ones who say that. What's their agenda? If you look at people who were behind the, the uh, Davos Billionaires Club and then the ones who ran the Glasgow Conference, these are people who for 30 years have been saying the world has too many people and we need to reduce the population. Now, they'd rather not do it with big wars because wars sometimes get out of control. But if you can do it with disease, with uh, IMF, International Monetary Fund conditionalities, destroy nations' ability to, to care for their poorest, uh, underfund infrastructure, including health infrastructure. This is what Parson Malthus talked about in the 1780s. He said, don't drain swamps because swamps produce diseases that reduce population to the poorest who have to drink the swamp water. Well, that's what we're seeing now. The idea that we have to give up technology and go back to these old inefficient forms of energy, which can't sustain 7 billion people, can't even sustain 3 or 4 billion. And so the Great Reset is to give the power to the central banks to turn over policymaking to technocrats who work for them. The central banks work for the, the private banks, the largest private banks, because central banks are not government institutions. And then if someone gets out of line, use the military against them. And this includes the Treasury and the Federal Reserve are setting up special detective units to check which countries and which banks are investing in corporations that have a carbon footprint. And part of the deal at, that was supposed to go through at Glasgow, which fortunately didn't go through, but part of the deal was that Carney had an agreement 
from over 400 financial institutions that there'll be no credit that will go to any company that produces a carbon footprint, which includes construction, cement, steel, uh, energy of, of any positive sort, and that the credit will be withheld. And in return for that, private equity funds would come up with $130 trillion to fund the so-called transition to green carbon-free technology. That money isn't going to go into production or infrastructure. It's going to go into a green financial bubble. So that's our view of what the Great Reset and the Green New Deal is. There's a really good uh, geopolitical analyst, fellow Croatian, Nikolas Soldo, who kind of put it, I think, succinctly that, you know, the climate change is basically another version of U.S., uh, regime change U.S. foreign policy, which you kind of described, you know, you've got the military arm that, that would go in the U.S. military and then you have the climate change financial arm. Um, and, you know, the, you kind of answered one of my the questions that I had. You, you guys talk a lot about the climate and the green agenda, how it's Malthusian, eugenicist, you know, COP26, the net zero program. But some of the things that they're saying sound really uh, extreme. Like if we were to really get there, I mean, they're talking about taking away literally and and we're we're seeing them begin to put policies into place that that are on the road to achieving some of these things such as taking away our uh meat they're they're buying up the farms uh um you know screwing yeah. up the 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 supply chain so uh, I'll, I'll, and then creating all this inflation making life expensive for, for, for everyone from food to energy to to um goods and, and transport um you know they talk about lo lowering the population limiting our freedom to, to travel you know they want to take away our, our cars and as you said transfer the wealth from the masses to the 0.1 uh, percent um would it i mean if they went this far wouldn't it create a problem uh, for them and, and you know how, you think they will how successful do you think they will be well I, i know you're very well informed so i know you're very well aware of people like aurelio pache and the club of rome that a lot of the environmentalism came out of the 60s from what we call the, the European financial oligarchy. And from the US side, this included the Rockefellers uh, who you know, set up the Environmental Defense Fund and these various other agencies to promote the, the hoax that we're destroying the planet with production. Now, they did all these charts and graphs and, and they had the limits to growth was produced by the uh, Club of Rome. You had uh, Paul Ehrlich's population bomb. Ehrlich said in 1967 that in 20 years, if we don't change the policy, the world will go up in a puff of green smoke or blue smoke in, in 20 years. Well, he was off a little bit. Uh, you, you also had the Meadows and Forrester Limits to Growth MIT study, which was the beginning of the fraudulent computer-generated uh, models that showed how we're going to use up all the resources and therefore we have to reduce population. The, the key then was that this became U.S. policy unbeknownst to almost everyone in 1974-75 when Kissinger drafted something called National Security Study Memo 200, which said that we have to have a foreign policy which is opposed to population growth. And they named 13 countries, including Mexico, Brazil, India, Nigeria, Uh, black and brown countries from the Southern Hemisphere, China, that had to reduce population. And they were going to use credit policy to do it. And that's what the International Monetary Fund was slated to do. And that's what the Perkins book, Economic Hitmen, gives you a little slice of that, what, how they were doing it. But this has been going on 
with a, a new form of colonialism. Now, what's interesting at Glasgow is who rebelled against it first? Nigeria, Indonesia, countries that said, we're not going to sacrifice our development model because you're polluting the world. The, the funniest thing to me was the, the great heroic welcome given to Narendra Modi of India when he said, oh, we'll get to net carbon zero by 2070, and everyone's cheering. If you read their, their documents, if we don't get to net carbon zero in the next two years, we won't be around in 2030. So they were using this as propaganda to go ahead with some of the things you're talking about, the fake meat, uh, get rid of farmers, get rid of advanced agriculture. That's what they're doing in Europe right now. European farmers are in an uproar over this. French farmers are marching on the Elysee Palace in Paris, spraying manure on it uh, in opposition to the European Union rules. In Germany, there are farmers in, a, in an uproar. Then you have the other side of it. The, some of the events that they claim are caused by climate change, like the floods in Germany, the hurricanes that hit the US. They're always hurricanes. They're always hot and cold days. It's called summer and winter. You know, sometimes it's more extreme than others. That's not caused by the internal combustion engine because we had uh, periods in the past of heat waves and ice ages before there was a single human being in a factory or driving a car. They have hot and cold periods on Mars. What is that caused by the Chinese rover that's up there? You know, so this is all a scientific fraud, but they use their control over media to run a narrative that if you deny it, it's the equivalent of denying the Holocaust. It, and so that's how they control things. And so, you know, when you, you look at the way they're, they're using this, you ask the question, well, what does it mean for them? Why do you think Bezos and Musk and these guys have a space program? They, they figure if the world becomes uninhabitable, they're going to be in some other universe, some other world. They have underground tunnels. They have plans how they can survive if they can reduce the population to one or two billion of mostly poor, brutish people living from the sweat of their brow, incapable of mobilizing anything, in which the one-tenth of a percent or one percent of the, the wealthiest have their jet-set lifestyle, that's how they figure the world can run. It's a dystopian science fiction view, which shows how absolutely insane they are. But it also shows how completely unempathetic they are with the situation with the population. I'll, I'll just add one point that, that's really kind of interesting. We have this situation now in Afghanistan, and you see all the people crying about what about Taliban's treatment of women and children in Afghanistan. At the same time, we're withholding $9 billion of money that belongs to the Afghan government, the Treasury is, because they don't like the Taliban. They're saying no trade with the Taliban until they meet all of our conditions. Well, what's going to happen to those women and children they're crying tears over? They're going to starve to death. They're going to freeze to death. This is the uh, hypocrisy of the human rights mafia. And the same people who run these endless wars and endless austerity run the human rights mafia to steamroll any country which gets out of line. So. These are people who see themselves as masters of the universe, who have no empathy for human beings whatsoever. Just keep in mind the famous statement from Prince Philip, who said his great hope 
is that if reincarnation is real, that he'll die and come back as a deadly virus to help deal with world overpopulation. That's the mentality of the British royal family, the city of London, and unfortunately, many of the people in the US Congress who are going along with these Green Deal policies. The other problem is that so-called opposition, so-called pro-growth Republicans, are austerity mongers who believe in this fictional idea of a free market economy and turn a blind eye to the theft being carried out by the corporate cartels. Why do they turn a blind eye? Because they're getting money from them. And, and just to add what you said about Prince Philip, uh, I recently commented how both the same Boris Johnson and his father, Stanley Johnson, were on television recently saying, you know, Boris Johnson saying jokingly, but come on, who jokes about this, saying that we should feed humans to animals and his father, Stanley Johnson, saying on television that, uh, you know, an attack on a bioweapons lab would be fantastic. It would get rid of a huge chunk of the human population. The, you, people can find that clip. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned, I've got actually right behind me, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb and some of the Club, Club of Rome stuff, Limits to Growth, right, right behind me. And I've interviewed as well, John Perkins uh, in the past. I just had a quick question on energy. Um, I'm not that well um, studied on the energy aspect and um, listeners of mine have comments with me, uh, conversations with me. And I know LaRouche, uh, the, the Schiller Institute and the LaRouche organization has done a lot uh, of work um, on energy, and I haven't been able to um, look into it uh, that much. But do you think that w that it's true what they're telling us, that we don't have enough energy, you know, capability to produce electricity and, and, and petroleum? Or do you think, um, you know, that, that there are technologies that we, we could continue to maintain our, our current uh, style of life? Well, if you believe the idea of the limits to growth, then even two people are too many because eventually they'll use up all the resources. Now, what differentiates human civilization from that of the apes or other, other uh, species? We're creative. We create new things. We've developed, especially in the last 500 years, a series of improvements in energy technology that are related to something called energy flux density, the amount of power you can get from smaller and smaller amounts of resources. You know, you think about the difference of a charcoal society where you have to cut down a whole forest to what you can do with coal, what you can do with oil and, and gas, what you can do with nuclear, what we should be able to do at some point soon with nuclear fusion. That's the concept of energy flux density. Now, if you have a movement that's against using nuclear energy because the um, earthquake at Fukushima destroyed a plant and, and scared Angela Merkel into giving up nuclear power, what's happening in Germany right now? Utility prices are going up 14% in the month of November because Germany is on an exit from nuclear and an exit from coal. And they're also, because of the European Union and the anti-Russian nonsense, cutting out the North Stream 2 so they won't get the natural gas from Russia. So they're saying, oh, we're so clean and we're so green. So where are we getting electricity in Germany? From coal plants in Poland and the Czech Republic, because Germany can afford to buy it and Poland and, and the Czech Republic need the money. This is, again, hypocrisy. You know, the the... We just had a conference, and, and if your viewers are, are interested in getting in-depth in the scientific question, uh, last weekend, the 13th and 14th of November, we had a two-day conference 
first day at a panel on the strategic situation and the economy. On Sunday the 14th, we had a, a really fascinating science panel, which included scientists who have been canceled by the Glasgow crowd. Scientists who say carbon dioxide is actually good for our planet, who say that it's actually the sun and uh, the atmosphere created by the galaxies, which determine the, the hot or cold uh, on, on our planet and other planets, solar radiation and so on, that the amount that comes from carbon dioxide is a tiny infinitesimal speck. So if people want to go through that, it's at the schillerinstitute.com uh, weekend conference, November 13th and 14th. A fascinating panel, including people who are top scientists from France, from Italy, from uh, the Netherlands, from the US. And, and uh, so these are the kinds of questions that come up. Now, there was a hearing in the US Congress a couple of days ago, Bauman from uh, New York, the so-called radical member of the squad, but who's actually an interesting guy. He's a high school principal. It was on the future of nuclear fusion. And this is the first time the Congress has had an open hearing on fusion in a long time. And it turns out there are breakthroughs everywhere. Fusion is where you fuse the subatomic particles rather than split them. And it's infinitely more powerful. It's the power source of the sun and most of the stars. And we've been trying for years to contain it with different ways, electric, uh, magnetism, and so on. But there have been some substantial breakthroughs recently, including in China. Now, here's the interesting thing, the part that I think you'll find interesting because it fits in with this whole theme of geopolitics. Why did the Congress suddenly get interested in fusion? Because China is moving ahead and is ahead of us on fusion. So it's another Sputnik moment. We can't get behind China. If they get ahead of us with this, they'll take over the world. So the unipolar types are suddenly getting interested in the science they've been throwing into the dustbin. So you know, I would argue that the, this, the, the, the scientific fraud when it comes to energy policy is extreme and is very easy to spot. The more difficult thing is to convince people that we can afford these new technologies because we have the neoliberal austerity mongers who say, oh, you're wasting money if you spend on these things. Let the private sector do it. Well, the private sector is, is doing some things, but they can't come up with the tens of billions and hundreds of billions. If we took one-tenth of the money that was spent by the United States on the Afghan war and put it into infrastructure, education, and energy, we'd solve most of these problems. That's why we have to take power away from the global financial interests and their, their uh, puppets in the military industrial complex if we're going to get out of this crisis alive. Yeah, I'll find the links to that talk you mentioned and include them in the description and, and watch them uh, myself. I'm, I'm interested. Uh, I wanted to also talk about something you've been talking about, something I've been talking about. You mentioned it in your update uh, today. How the or, or or a few days ago, how the intelligence community is creating false narratives in order to create a false flag or pretext or smokescreen for war with Russia, Belarus, China. Um, indeed, from reading many analysts, there seems to be a growing chorus of intelligent people saying we are. It seems, you know, unfortunately, moving toward war. You know, just to name a few, all of which I've interviewed: Canadian academic Paul Robinson, Norwegian academic Glenn Deason, um, the famous Secker. Uh, they are all saying we are on the warpath. That is just a matter of time, given the current 
trajectory, you know, that the Anglo-American establishment is stopping at nothing to take Belarus uh, and Russia. W what are your thoughts on, you know, this push towards war with, with Russia and China? I think any of your viewers who are at all religious should thank God every night that Putin is the president of Russia and Xi Jinping is the president of China, because there are people in their militaries who are ready to unleash uh, against the United States and NATO. You know, you take the case of, of Ukraine. The whole story here is so obvious. A democratically elected government was overthrown by people like Victoria Nuland, a, a very well-known neoconservative, George Soros, a, a well-known regime changer, neo-Nazi militia units inside Ukraine that we supported to overthrow the Yanukovych government. And after that happened, and the situation was chaotic, the discussion started, Ukraine must join NATO. Well, you know, at the end of the Cold War, a deal was made between James Baker and Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, that the U.S. would, would let, or that the, it was made with Gorbachev, actually, that they would let Germany reunify and the Warsaw Pact would dissolve, but NATO would not move eastward. And I've talked to several people, including Secretary of State Baker and Horst Telchik, who was the leading uh, advisor to Helmut Kohl, who were at that meeting, who said that deal was made, but it was never put in writing. The idea that we're going to put troops armed with advanced U.S. weapons on the border with Russia, as we already have with the Baltic states, as we want to with Belarus and with Georgia, that, that the, and the, the Russians should see this at, at, to protect the West from advancing Russian hordes. The Russians know this is a crock. They know it's a lie because they have no intention. What, what would Putin gain by going into Ukraine right now? Ukraine is an economic basket case. And just today, uh, Avril Haines, the, the director of national intelligence is in Brussels and she's briefing our NATO allies that our wonderful intelligence people have absolute proof that Russia is planning to invade Ukraine and they'll do it at the point at which Putin decides to do it. Now, there's no evidence. The reason there are some Russian maneuvers going on on the Ukrainian border is to keep an eye, to keep an eye on the NATO maneuvers, including the naval maneuvers in the Black Sea. Remember last summer, there was nearly a shootout on, near the Crimea when a British destroyer went into Russian territorial waters. Same thing is true with the South China Sea, the Strait of Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. Why are we forming a new alliance, a new security pact between the US, the UK and Australia? So Australia can have underwater nuclear subs that can stay down there for months at a time off the coast of China. Why, here's the, here's the bigger question when you get to geopolitics. Why is it that the rise of a country like China, which has done a miraculous job in the last 20 years, lifting over 800 million people out of poverty, and is now offering through the Belt and Road Initiative to extend that to its neighbors and to other countries, including to countries in South and Central America uh, and Africa? Why is that a threat to the United States? Well, Here's a newsflash. It's not a threat to the United States. It's a threat to the international oligarchy, which doesn't want those nations to develop. 
on top of everything else, they want those raw materials in those countries to stay in the ground, to be looted in the future. In the same way, the colonial policy in the 19th and early 20th century uh, took everything they could from these poorer countries and kept them poor. So the idea that a country like Ghana or Zimbabwe could overcome the legacy of colonialism and leapfrog into the nuclear era is a strategic threat to the bankers and the, the military industrial complex. So that's why they're preparing false flag operations. Now, if you have all these NATO flights and, and Russian flights crisscrossing over the Baltics and the Balkans and the Black Sea, we're really just an accident away from a shooting war. This is one of the important reasons that in, in 2016, a number of people ended up supporting Trump over Hillary because Hillary was saying, we're gonna have a no-fly zone over Syria when the Russians were already there. It was a World War III waiting to happen. And I think Donald Trump was effective in making uh, as a leading campaign issue, ending the endless wars. Unfortunately, when he became president, he found out how hard that is to do. And he was waiting for a second term to do it, a huge mistake. And from the beginning of his administration, the military industrial complex, the intelligence community, the Obama team and others were trying to get rid of him in a regime change to make sure he didn't do it. So we are a false flag catastrophe from war. Now there were a couple of these, remember the so-called chemical weapons attack in Duma, which has now been exposed by the chemical, the OPCW as having been a lie largely manufactured by the same British intelligence which is responsible for saying that Putin is using Novichok on all his enemies. They, they have this narrative of chemical weapons use by Russia, by Russian allies like Syria. And Trump, I mean, he, he, he did bomb something in Syria, but he didn't bomb something important. And he did hold back a couple of times when some, someone like Mad Dog Bolton was saying, go in and blow up Iran. So, you know, we're very close repeatedly to heading into a catastrophe, an international war that could go to nuclear weapons very quickly. That's why I say we, we should be thankful that Putin and Xi Jinping are rational. And now we're seeing something interesting. Look what happened just this week after the flop at COP26. You had the Biden-Xi summit, which was initiated by Biden. And everyone's saying, well, they disagree on all sorts of things and there are all these contentious issues. Well, they talked and Biden conceded that the U.S. is still, exist is still accepting the one China policy and that he understands that Xi doesn't want a war. Very important because he's got people in his own administration, like his idiot ambassador to China, uh, Burns, who basically is saying we've got to fight We've got to arm Taiwan and fight for Taiwan. What was the other thing that happened? You have Belarus, Poland. Well, Merkel, who's on her way out, had two discussions with Lukashenko. The European Union was refusing to talk to Lukashenko. In fact, they just put more sanctions on Belarus. And then Lukashenko followed through his threat. He shut down the flow of gas for three days to, to Europe. And what happened? On the spot market, there's a 17% price increase in, in natural gas one day, 5% the next. But Merkel talked to him. And then Macron talked with Putin. And Putin's made an extremely important point about Belarus. 
He said, where do these refugees come from, these migrants come from? Probably a couple, a couple thousand maximum. They come from war zones that you created, countries that you destroyed. You destroyed their cities, you destroyed their infrastructure. And now you're putting sanctions against them, like the Caesar sanctions against Syria. You want to stop refugee flows? Stop the damn wars and the sanctions. Release the funds to Afghanistan. Act like a human civilization. And that's what we have to demand of the governments in the transatlantic region, including the British government, including, you know, Macron and Merkel have been a part of this whole operation. Maybe, maybe they're getting a little bit afraid. In Germany, where I live now, we're very close to Ukraine <laughs> geographically. If you have a war in Ukraine, it's not going to leave Germany unaffected. So I think reality may be breaking through that you cannot impose these utopian schemes on people without having a blowback. You mentioned uh, Putin and Xi Jinping, and this has forever been a question of mine and that of many other guests. It's like a paradox. I, I can't answer it. I wanted to get your insight where we see two things happening at the same time, where on one hand, Russia, you know, Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China are implementing some crazy technocratic totalitarian great reset agendas, you know, these QR code vaccine passports and this kind of biosecurity regime to different degrees. But at the same time, we're seeing them, as you just pointed out, act independently, sovereignly against the West. So it's like on some things they're on board with this kind of reset, great reset program. And then on others, they're not. So like at the end of the day, you know, what's going on? Where do they stand? Is I mean, are we moving to this multipolar world or what's going on here in your view? Well, that's that's the whole issue. And, and I would take a little bit of exception to what how you characterize the Russian and Chinese policy, because we're getting the story from London, for example, on the Uyghurs. You talk to Muslims who live in that region. They say, how are they committing genocide? The Uyghur population has doubled in the last years. Their income has doubled. What they've done is they've cracked down on the terrorists there. And they did it without destroying the cities that we did in Iraq and, and Syria and other places. Uh, in terms of the, the bio policy and so on, look, China did something which in the West is considered unacceptable, shutting down cities, going door to door to do tests, having people have to report uh, any illnesses, uh, contact tracing, and so on. As a result, COVID is very small in China. Now, in the West, we have this idea that we have our individual freedom is more important than public health. And this is a controversial thing that, that the Schiller Institute has been saying, but we're absolutely convinced of this, that the people who initially said coronavirus is not a threat are now saying that, well, it's being used to have a top-down police state. Well, if, if your idea of freedom is being able to go to bars, big events and things of that sort, without concern that you might be spreading a disease, that's putting your personal freedom, which is a 1968er cultural attitude above the general welfare. And one of the things I've said recently on some of the programs I'm on that, that freaks out the, a lot of the Trump supporters and others who say, well, our constitution guarantees our individual freedom. 
Well, in 1777, there was a smallpox outbreak among American troops in the Revolutionary War against Britain. The Constitutional or the, the uh, Continental Congress ruled that there could be no vaccines because they were just beginning to experiment with smallpox, putting a little bit of smallpox in someone's body to see if that would build up resistance. They said, no, we're not going to allow that. George Washington, the founder, the founding father of the American Republic overruled that and ordered a mandate that every one of his soldiers be treated with the smallpox vaccine. And he said that's because the smallpox was killing more soldiers than the British. Now, 14 years later, there was a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. And the, uh, one of the founding fathers, I forget his name right now, from Philadelphia, ordered people to either leave the town or stay in their homes. And they beat the outbreak. Now, their view was the general wealth, that, that freedom is the most important thing, but the general welfare is even more important because if you don't take care to protect the life of all your citizens, what good is it if a bunch of people can go to rock concerts and smoke dope? And I, I think that's where we're losing the morality and you see it in the lack of empathy with the people who are dying, whether they're dying of COVID or starvation or lack of medication as in Afghanistan. And, and this is a tragic uh, flaw, you know, a, a wanton acceptance that, well, if older people die, so what? If someone who has a heart problem dies, so what? If someone has lung problems and they die of COVID, so what? That fits into the Malthusianism. And I think this is where we have to really draw a line and fight. Now, that, that doesn't mean you give a blank check to the government to do whatever they want. But, you know, people who say that this was a quick deal, the COVID vaccinations, and no one knows what's in them, they've been working on them since 2003. And I talked to a lot of virologists here in Germany who have made the point that the, a lot of these scare stories about all the people dying from the vaccine are not true. They're coming from people who are opposed to modern medicine. And so in a sense, that's the anti-science view. Now, I'm not defending Fauci and Bill Gates and these guys, but the actual doctors on the front lines who are trying to save lives. And I think people have to have a broader view of what's at stake here. I guess one of my last uh, questions would be, you were talking about taking away the power from these global elites, global, global bankers. And, um, you know, it, it's it kind of a feeling right now that we, we're, we're being overrun, right, by, the, by their, their armies. Uh, how do you see going forward, whether there's any hope in the American or European um, political systems, this uh, populism or, or whatever, you know, how do we take back that power? You know, how are things going at this moment? You know, what do we do to, to make things better? Well, I think what you're doing is an example. You talk to a lot of people and try and expand the reach of your voice. Now, here's something that, that I think is a, the, the real revolution that's underway. In 2016, you had the Brexit vote. That wasn't a vote for Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson. It was against the, the European Union's overreach. You had the Trump election in the US. We had an actual opportunity. Had Trump done what he said he was going to do, to crush the establishment in that first term. When he was running for office, he, he campaigned for Glass-Steagall banking reform. 
which would separate the commercial banks and the investment banks and make sure there are no more bailouts of the swindlers of the, and speculators of the investment banks. They would have gone under. That way, and you, you protect the commercial banks because that's where people have their checking accounts, savings accounts, commercial accounts, and so on. That that would have ended a significant amount of the power of those bankers. Secondly, had he followed through in fully declassifying publicly the documentation that they put together of who ran the coup against him, it would have crushed the deep state. People like Brennan. I mean, we're seeing it come out now in little dribs and drabs in the Durham investigation. It was the Clinton campaign working with the media, working with the intelligence community, working with British intelligence that ran the coup. They should all be in jail. Why is it that Roger Stone was sentenced to prison for something he didn't do when Brennan and, and uh, Clapper and others lie to Congress routinely, when Comey told one lie after another, when they used the FISA court to violate the, the rights of members of the Trump team. So I, I personally think that, and, and I supported Trump against the whole Russiagate thing fully. You've probably seen some of the articles. I wrote dozens of articles. Uh, but I was disappointed that when push came to shove, he pulled back. And I think it was because he was probably given some warnings from some of the people in the deep state and his own team. I mean, why does he bring in a John Bolton or a Pompeo? You know, these are hardcore deep state fascists. And I think it was either bad judgment on his part or that he was trying to appease these guys to, to make sure he had a second term. Now, a lot of people said in the second term, he was then gonna move against them. Well. He had a chance. You know, I'm not yet willing to give him a second chance. But what I think is clear is the hunger for truth in the population is still there. People want to know why is everything falling apart? Why is the government so full of liars and thieves? Why can't we get a straight story? And I, I think instead of looking to the Washington Post and CNN, people are now looking to alternatives. Now, keep in mind. The people who run the coups are also running a lot of the social media and creating false narratives as a gang counter gang. That's why I think our voice is so important because we have from the beginning always started from the standpoint of not looking for an individual hero, but looking to the American people who showed their capacity to mobilize in World War II in the civil rights movement. Uh, and in 2016 by making sure Hillary didn't end up as president. So I think there's a potential, but there, there's an education process that has to be sped up. And that's why I do the radio interviews and blogs and writing and everything that I do. Helga Zeppelarouche is now being interviewed every day in China, Pakistan, Iran. Uh, now here we, it's ironic, here we are, both Helga and I are in Germany and we're, I wouldn't say big media personalities, but we're pretty well known outside of Germany. In Germany, she's a non-person. Cancel culture has gotten to Helga Zepp-LaRouche, just as they tried to do to Lyndon LaRouche by silencing him. So, you know, my mission is to make sure that what I learned from Lyndon LaRouche about how you fight for a republic and the, the 
doing it out of the love of mankind as opposed to a desire for revenge. I think that's the message we have to take forth. And if enough people get courage, I think the next months will be absolutely crucial because they just suffered a huge loss at the COP26 conference. If they don't get a war with Ukraine or in the South China Sea, that will be another setback for them. And, and I think the financial crisis is going to hit them because the, they just renominated Jerome Powell. So what's his policy? If he tapers, if he cuts back the, 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 uh, by raising interest rates, you set forth a, a chain reaction of bankruptcies. Uh, if you keep the quantitative easing going, you increase the inflation. So they don't know what to do. We have a program. We've got to get the LaRouche Four Laws uh, and the economic program to more people. All right. I, I think that's a good and positive note to leave it on. And I would agree with you as well regarding the independent or alternative media, whatever you want to call it. And I've actually been saying this the last few days for people to be wary a bit of everyone in alternative media, including myself, right? Question me. My, my only purpose is, as you said, I talk to a broad swath of people and I just want to get their views. And you know, maybe I'm wrong sometimes and I will recalibrate my, my views. I'm just about putting the information out there, figuring out what is the truth and it's, it's not always very easy and so but there are a lot of there's a lot of disinformation and stuff in the independent media so we have to be uh, more discerning the website is larouchorganization.nationbuilder.com uh, as well as a few other websites I pull, i'll put in the description people can, can go there to sign up for your daily updates you are on twitter uh is there any, any other website or project that we should know about well, the the other thing that, that I really encourage is for people to send me a personal email at my personal email address, and I'll send you a link so you can sign up for free for my blog page. And that way, I get a sense of what people are, how they're reacting, what they think, whether they agree, disagree, how we can share ideas. And, and I've had thousands of people that have gotten in touch with me that way. So you can reach me at harleysch at gmail.com. That's H-A-R-L-E-Y-S-C-H at gmail.com. It may take me a couple of days to get back to you because sometimes I get a thousand or more emails a day, but I, I find that a very useful way of avoiding, you know, just a pro forma response and, and actually having a chance to talk to real people. All right, everyone be sure to follow Harley Schlanger on Twitter, get his updates. Um, and yeah, thanks for your great work, Harley, and thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Well, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored, YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.